ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hyenas get such a bad rap. They are a matriarchal society and the females are in charge. Yeah, girl. The males are basically like the lowest rung of society. They're kind of outcasts. It's the opposite of The Handmaid's Tale. It's The Hyena's Tale. The males are basically begging for acceptance, food and sex because the females run the show. When you see them out in the field, good luck trying to tell an individual hyena whether it's a male or female or not because they've got the same, what looks like the same genitalia. Females have an eight-inch clitoris that's shaped and positioned exactly like the male's penis. Wait, 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 wait. You can't tell the difference between the genitalia of a male versus a female. It's almost as if what we know of human gender norms might have to be thrown out the window. Yes, it's What the Duck, where we are going to be talking about being a bitch. You know, a female in the natural world. And it turns out nature has little regard for your culturally constructed views of gender. Because they've got male sex chromosomes, but they actually present as females. Wait, what? They're both? Oh, no, no, no. Females should not be aggressive like this. So we get rid of that. Say no to non-compliant females. Breed out culturally male characteristics. Females have an eight-inch clitoris. Well, we're certainly not going to get rid of that, though. Meet Lucy Cook, a zoologist and author of Bitch, a revolutionary guide to sex, evolution and the female animal. Which includes descriptions of the extraordinary female spotted hyena, which has an eight-inch clitoris. No wonder they're laughing all the time. What's even more fantastic about the female is that not only does she have this enlarged clitoris that looks like a penis, and she urinates through the tip of it like a male, but she also has a pair of fake balls. <laughs> she's got, she's got a, a hairy scrotal sac where her labia have fused and filled with fatty tissue, and they look like a fake scrotum. I mean, she's so badass. But in, in the most amazing, there was this paper written in the, like the 1980s, I think, that they suggested the only means of telling males and females apart was by palpation of the scrotum. To see whether there's treasure within. But testicles or no, the pseudo-penis isn't all tucked away. It's out there, flopping around like a fresh strap of licorice on a warm day. Well, that is until it isn't floppy anymore. So the females... They have erectile tissue in their clitorises, they get erections, and they also sniff one another's erections during greeting ceremonies. I rarely get invitations to parties such as this. But these absolutely wonderful, thick-necked, tucked-butt hyenas with indistinguishable meaty treaties make me raise a question. What is it to be a female? When I talk about males and females, I'm, I'm talking about their biological sex. And biological sex is defined by whether you produce eggs or sperm. Seems nice and binary, right? And females produce eggs. The trouble with that is is that there are an awful lot of animals that produce both eggs and sperm, or they've got gonads that produce 
sort of protosperm, but some eggs or, you know, that. so at the end of the day, if you're going to force that into a binary, it is a subjective choice where you draw the line. Although there are only two types of sex cell, either eggs or sperm, the manifestation of sex is anything but binary. It's a huge spectrum and incredibly complex, gloriously so. And straightforward definitions that you might consider that, you know, a female is defined by her sex chromosomes, for example. Males are XY and females are XX. Or are they? No. Right. Reptiles have weird sex. Oh, seems a bit judgy, but okay. Bearded dragons are special because they have sex chromosomes like we do and like birds do. Yes, bearded dragons, says Arthur Georges from the University of Canberra, are same-same, but different. Basically, those sex chromosomes, the chromosomes that an offspring gets from its mum, determines the sex of the offspring of a bearded dragon. Okay, so far, same as us. The difference is that at some point in development in the egg, temperature comes in and overrides that program and reprograms the males to become females. So it's really interesting because they've got male sex chromosomes, but they actually present as females. So it's interesting because the sex gets reversed from male to female, and then those females can mate with ordinary males. You see what I mean? Yeah, it's like some trans-exclusionary radical feminist nightmare. A male chromosome female mates with a male chromosomed male. The whole lineage comes out as without the sex chromosome, which is a W chromosome, that's lost. And then the males can breed with the males, but they produce females because of the high temperatures. So you get males and females still because of the high temperatures, but they've lost the sex chromosome. So we've got lines breeding in the laboratory that are doing exactly that. Okay, my eyes gone all twitchy. That's like a bit of a mind blower. It's like throwing away the white chromosome from humans because of temperature. But you still end up with a heap of bearded lady dragons. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Okay. So these individuals that are genotype male but externally female presenting and able to mate, do they have other elements that impact their biological success? Yes, they do. So basically the dads make better mums. So basically (laughs) (laughs) what happens is the sexual animals grow bigger and as a consequence they have larger clutches and they also lay more clutches. So the sex-reversed animals grow bigger and are more fecund and so in a sense they're better mums than the actual normal mums, Wow, which is interesting. So why is it then that they haven't taken over the whole population? I mean, it's difficult to say. So this does occur in the wild. So we have found sex-reversed animals in the wild up at Kunnamulla. What happens in a laboratory in terms of fitness doesn't necessarily translate into wild situations for fitness. So the sex-reversed animals that are female are also bolder and they've got some other attributes that might seem like they'd make them fitter. But, I mean, if you're bolder in the wild, maybe you get picked off by eagles more easily. So it's a little bit hard to say whether or not they're going to take over. But what we've found is that as climate warms, you get more and more of this sex reversal until eventually 
they will take over. It won't take much more global warming before the sex reversal becomes so predominant that the the actual sex chromosome is eliminated from the population altogether. So what does this tell us then about sex in the animal kingdom? It tells us that it's very plastic. Plastic, meaning flexible, not made of Tupperware. But sex determination itself, particularly in reptiles and fish, is highly variable in the evolutionary tree. And in fact, there's a haphazard distribution of the different types of sex determination across the evolutionary tree of reptiles, which suggests it's been chopping and changing a lot in evolutionary history. But this idea of selection, I want to rush to explain, doesn't necessarily indicate a conscious decision on the part of the mother. Or does it? Because is there any evidence that the bearded dragons might be incubating or guarding their eggs to influence the sex outcomes? Yeah, it's possible the jury's out on it in terms of having demonstrated it. It is possible that they can decide that there's too many males in the population or there are more males in the population than there are females, in which case they'll get a, a big selective advantage by producing more of the rarer sex. So they could adjust where they nested in order to produce, say, more females when there's a male-dominated population. But really, the, the information that's available at the time of nesting is not sufficient to be able to predict what conditions are going to prevail at the time that sex is determined. So there's a, that disconnect. Where it gets really exciting is if viviparous species, species that are live bearers, have these sort of uh, thermolabile sex. That's that's where it gets really interesting because, of course, they can manipulate the environment of their offspring. And and there was a, a paper that uh, did show that sort of manipulation several years ago, but uh, subsequent work hasn't been able to reproduce that result. And so the jury's still out on whether they can allocate the sexes of their offspring to gain advantage uh, in terms of producing more grandchildren. It's a crazy old world out there, isn't it? This reversal happens while they're in the egg. So this doesn't happen when the animal is out and about and as an adult. No, that's right. It's not like some of the fish where they reverse sex as an adult. Yep. Changing your sex once you've already all grown up. Some fish can change sex as adults. The blue-headed wrasse is called the blue-headed wrasse because the dominant male has a blue head. But if he's knocked off and becomes fish fingers, then the biggest female starts to have her head turn blue within hours. Within 10 days, her ovaries start to change to testes, and within a month, she's apparently fully male. So it's not temperature-controlled, nor chromosomes. It's culturally-controlled sex-flipping bonkers. It just throws all of this idea that you can fit the animal kingdom into one of two neat binary boxes. It just blows it out the water. No pun intended, I'm sure. Once you get down to the fine grain of it, the manifestation of sex is complex and and much more of a spectrum than Victorians would have liked us to believe. As a generalisation, you could say that Victorian-era ideals held that females were lambs of the hearth, they were docile and pure, with warbling singing voices, and they lived only to sacrifice themselves to the family home. As Queen Victoria, for whom the era is named, might have said, 
we are not amused. Yeah, when I was studying, females were depicted in a pretty miserable, depressing way because the sort of Darwinian paradigm of male supremacy was still very much in the ether. I was taught that females were passive, coy, chaste and submissive and that males were active, aggressive, competitive, promiscuous and the dominant drivers of evolutionary change. And that really... This was a strict binary. You know, this was how it was, and it was extremely deterministic. And <laughs> I do remember my heart sinking as an egg-making student of evolution, that uh, I, I just couldn't see my reflection in this kind of 1950s sitcom of animal roles. And so I think I was always sort of fascinated from that point on in stories that broke the mould. Stories like the dominant female hyenas and the sex-changing bearded dragon, both of which appear in Lucy's book, Bitch. You know, the idea that eggs are expensive and sperm are cheap and so females will be choosy and males will be philandering, promiscuous, competitive types. That's a universal law that sort of is, is permeated into culture way beyond the reach of evolutionary biologists, you know. So it's an incredible cultural bias. And that, in turn, has influenced how scientists approach their studies of the natural world, like in the case of the pinion jay, an American bird which sort of looks like someone took a grey shrike thrush and put it in a washing machine with a pair of new blue jeans. The colour has stained it irretrievably. There are this pair of American ornithologists who are the world authority on pinion jays that tend to roost in large flocks and they're very smart. The birds, that is. The scientists, that remains to be seen. They're social birds, so there's likely some sort of hierarchy involved. So these ornithologists went looking for the hierarchy. So, of course, they start looking for the alpha male. Naturally, because, of course, you know, every hierarchy is going to have an alpha male at the top. Yep, keeping everyone below in line, having all the females, all the food, fathering the flock. And they were sort of shocked to discover that male pinion jays were basically committed pacifists. And even though they tried to sort of encourage territorial wars between the males by setting traps of, like, greasy mealworms and things like that, they couldn't get the males to fight. But the scientists weren't going to give up that easily. They diligently recorded all this data that was based on little more than dirty looks, like one bird giving the other what was, was a dirty look <laughs> rather than any kind of aggression. And they dutifully recorded hundreds of these very weak interactions. Pinion J side eye from male blue, blue, black to male orange, yellow, teal. And then when they came to try and draw up their dominance matrix, it, it didn't make any sense. And they couldn't, it was no leading male. They just, they couldn't figure it out. A dominance matrix is sort of like totaling up the bouts. Who was in them and who won, and then you make overall rankings. You know, sort of like you would in a round-robin tournament. Or a <clears throat> gyrating J tournament, as it were. Now, the curious thing is, their data does show significantly more violent attacks between individuals than the ones that were part of their dominance matrix. It's just that they didn't happen between males, it was between females. They recorded females attacking each other in air and falling to the ground dramatically and pecking at each other viciously. But they just discounted any of this. They assumed that none of this could be anything to do with the dominance hierarchy. And instead what they did was that they attributed it to um, female PNS, pre-nesting syndrome. Such a mysterious syndrome, such 
female hormones. <laughs> which which uh, doesn't exist. Ah. The answer was much more obvious. I mean, basically, they're fighting for dominance, they're fighting for territories, but they just, they couldn't see it. They Instead, they came up with this, this ludicrous excuse for the female behaviour and didn't even consider that it could be part of uh, any kind of hierarchy, which is nuts. <clears throat> yeah, no pun intended, I'm sure. This is a classic example of how good scientists can suffer from bad biases and how insidious cultural bias is. And by viewing the, the animal kingdom through this prism, we completely misunderstood it. So the way that they recorded their data, I mean, they were diligent scientists, but they were just blinded by bias. Look, I don't want a bird do all over this one pair of ornithologists because science is the pursuit of answers. It's not the answers themselves. And look, they're not the only ones to be caught in an unwitting application of biological sexism. When I was writing this book, even though I was investigating sexist bias, I realised that I actually thought that way because I'd been taught that way. You know, that was how I viewed the world. Like, I, I just made assumptions about males being dominant and it's incredibly insidious stuff. It's literally everywhere. Yeah. Even inside you. Creepy. And it might even be in some of science's smallest contributors. Yeah, this was Catherine Dulac. Catherine Dulac? Who's this incredible neuroscientist at Harvard. Catherine Dulac isn't small at all. In fact, she's an intellectual giant. Experimental system is the lab mouse. Mice are used in labs for a myriad of reasons. They breed quickly and it's really easy to create genetically similar mice. Basically, they are inbred to the extreme. And this makes it easier for scientists to understand the genetic and molecular basis for animal behaviour. They take out a heap of genetic variables, so their results are hopefully more clear about what's going on. But the stud book, per se, the selection of traits, is influenced by the biases of the people in control. Oh, absolutely. In fact, this is a work that was mainly driven by a former postdoc of mine, Tali Kimshi, at the Weizmann Institute. She's somebody who came to my lab many years ago, and she was very interested in wild mice. And she bluntly told me, I think lab mice are not real mice. <laughs> the real mice are the wild mice. And so we got wild mice in the lab. No small feat, by the way. One of the reasons that lab mice are often purchased from a catalogue or a highly controlled population is because they carry less disease. Wild mice, well, that's a whole other story. But Tali Kimchi persisted and she got the mice to breed successfully. And she observed something extraordinary which is that there was an outlier. When she compared the physiological traits, so the weight, the um, anxiety behavior, aggressive behavior, the, you know, any type of trait, behaviorally or physiological trait, she tested males and females from lab mice and from wild mice. And there was one outlier, and that's the female lab mouse. The female lab mouse acted very differently from any of the other mice. These females are just very passive. They mate very easily. They don't attack. They just 
reproduce very quickly. And you can imagine that during the breeding selection, there was something in the mind of people who were doing the breeding. They wanted to have uh, docile females, basically, that breeded easily. Any female that showed any trait of aggression probably was kicked out and killed. And so genetically, that led to this just very spectacular bias of females that were unlike any of the other real animals. Did... Wait a second. Did, did they create their own perfect woman in the lab? She's compliant, she doesn't answer back, she does as she's bidden. But of course that's, well, that is someone's fantasy of a female. So imagine, in the wild, females are as aggressive as the males. They, you know, if you try to put a male in a cage with a wild female, the first thing the wild female will do is to attack the male. Right. They have a drive to survive. You have a male that show aggressive trait. Okay, you know, it's a male. It's okay. Aggressive. Yeah, we can understand that. Now you have a female that is equally aggressive. Oh, no, no, no. Female should not be aggressive like this. So we get rid of that. And so at the end, we indeed have a population that has a behavior that has been sculpted in, in some sense by domestication. And so that's a huge problem. And when you think about how the results of mice studies are often extrapolated out into all mammals, including humans, this inbred bias could be impacting female health outcomes. In neuroscience research, male mice are used at a rate of six to one females. And all this makes you wonder then how a drug like Ambien, a sleeping pill, makes it all the way to market until they notice that it's more potent on female physiology. And in a broader sense, this avoidance of real female mice is skewing our understanding of biological processes by skewing the experimental sample. This problem has been somehow ignored because for up to very recently, there was the sense that behavior of females was not interesting anyway. <laughs> <laughs> this was a remarkable surprise for me. You know, I come as a young junior faculty starting my research and I say, yeah, you know, they are 50% males, 50% females. So behavior of female is as interesting as the behavior of males. But nobody was doing research on female behavior. Science is all about asking questions. You ask questions that you're interested in that from your perspective. So if science is dominated by males, that they're looking through the prism of being male and they're like, oh, he looks like he's running a show. And, you know, you see things from your perspective. You're not interested in the females. Oh, they look like they're all dowdy and they're all just mums, aren't they? They're not, there's nothing interesting there. So it takes a female to come along and say, well, hang on, just to pay attention, basically. I discovered that science also carries its own stereotype, social stereotype. You know, now having more women doing research, obviously interested in female behavior, I think all of this uh, hopefully is going to change a little bit. What's really exciting is we're sort of benefiting now from the 1960s, 70s wave of feminism that's translated into science now. And so a lot of this sexist bias is being overturned now. But what 
I discovered, I went in search of sexist bias, but I wasn't expecting to find heteronormative bias. The arrival of people being able to be open about their sexuality and asking questions from a non-binary perspective is really going to bring some amazing revelations, I think, in, in the next few years about how we see the animal kingdom. I, I think it's a very exciting time to be an evolutionary biologist. Next episode of What the Duck, Lucy Cook, author of Bitch, A Revolutionary Guide to Sex, Evolution and the Female Animal, will be back. We're going to take on more bitchy topics. The beefcake of the biology world, Charles Darwin. The more we poke around in this sandpit of female desire, the more we find gold. And by poke around, I mean a sage-grouse sex robot. Well, what Gail did in order to sort of, you know, really drill into what's really going on is she created a robot female sage-grouse out of a taxidermy bird, a robot she bought on the internet, and a pair of Spanx. What the Duck is an ABC Science production. I'm Dr Anne Jones, and this program is produced by Patria Ladgrove. We make it on the lands of the Ghana and Wadawurrung people. Remember, go and find us on the ABC Listen app or your nearest podcast listening app. And remember to hit follow and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.